0: Well, in the garden, human beings were, were designed like like rulers, you know, like, like kings and queens and stuff. I mean, to really understand this, y- you have to understand how God is introduced to us by the biblical authors, and, and, and then take a look at these kind of parallels between the, the God of the created order and the human beings he makes. First, got to understand that God is set up as a great king in the opening chapters of the biblical epic. You know, in the ancient world, kings, they they create order, they create borders, they create safety. And there was no question, the gods were in charge. They did all the above, and therefore were kings of existence. And then more than that, actual kings in existence at the times, you know, like pharaohs and those guys, they were said to be made in the divine image. Because you were a king, you reflected the likeness of the gods who were also kings. So to bear the divine image meant to be a a king or or, or a ruler. And so so in in this story, in the biblical story, God commands these these dirt creatures to have dominion, to multiply so that this magnanimous order of God could radiate out of the Garden of Eden and into Eden and, and likely beyond. So that the humans, Adam and Eve, they're undoubtedly written as to reflect the kingship of the creator God. But the important thing to realize, Austin, is that at no point are the human beings characterized as, as those who would usurp the kingship of the creator god the human kings they reflected the true king but they would never be the true king themselves and though they were commanded to rule over the beasts of the field they failed to exercise their kingship their authority over the serpent this rips them from their dais they're thrown to the ground from which they were created this is why it is said that human beings have a marred image of God, you know? Because they don't properly reflect the kingship of the true king of creation. They, re- they reflect a, a dim, a marred version of that kingship. And, and that marring often leads to unrighteous injustices. To reflect properly the true kingship of God is to be oriented properly as a servant to this true king. Though humans were created to be leaders in the world, they were created to be subjects to the king. And so that's why today in your episode on James, the story of that letter is written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. You know what? Let's explore. hey bible nuts thanks so much for exploring with us today in this episode we are going to be taking a look at one of the most infamous letters in the new testament (laughs) martin luther did not approve of the canonicity of this book it has confounded theologians and lay people alike for centuries but today you and i with the half a brain between us are going to figure out just what this book means (laughs) actually that's That's not entirely true. On our YouTube channel, I did this extensive study on the book of James, and so I had to do a ton of research for that. And so, really, I mean, you and I have half a brain between us, but the caravan of scholarly and theological research that had gone on through the history of the saints gave us pretty much the full breadth and width of the tools for understanding this book that we need. I say that to say this. Think of James like Gandalf. My lord, Gandalf the Grey is coming. Okay, so that's from the video series, yes, but I still stand by it. Think of James like Gandalf, you know, in that scene in Lord of the Rings, where Gandalf bursts into the Golden Hall and Theoden is sitting there all small and decrepit because his mind is being poisoned by Sauron and Gandalf is there to set him the flip straight and Theoden says (laughs) You have no power here Gandalf the gray? And Gandalf's gray cloak flies back and shining forth from this is his blinding white majesty that's so powerful it forces Sauron in Theoden to leap from the throne and Gandalf bang, smacks him back to the rightful place. And Theoden like starts to, you know, uncurl as the darkness leaves his body and drains from his mind. That's exactly what happens when you open up the book of James. That's exactly what it was meant to do. Okay, James may not be nearly as old as Gandalf, but he is certainly quite as wise. And his letter reflects that reality. I I mean, it uses language from the Sermon on the Mount and the Proverbs to communicate to us that that his letter is is highly regarded as wisdom literature. And this James that writes the letter was the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary. And he had risen to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And there are lots of historical sources that tell us that this pastor in the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, was this extraordinarily righteous and pious man. But to understand why James is writing his letter at all, we need to understand uh, about 200 years worth of history leading up to this point, but you know, I'm gonna fly through this 200 years pretty quick, so hold your breath. The year is about 167 BC. It's about 200 years before James writes his letter and the Maccabeans lead a revolt throwing off the Greek empire. And then 100 years later, Pompey captures Jerusalem and Israel falls to Rome. The tension from that point on in 63 BC continues to build until, like a pressure cooker, a cultural burst of steam and anger and resentment bursts forth in 70 AD when Rome attacks Jerusalem and destroys the Temple Mount, desecrating the altar. James writes his letter, just a few years before the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. You see, James writes his letter in about 48 AD. In 36 AD, this zealous group of Messiah-believing Hebrew people named Christians have just experienced their first real taste of persecution, as Stephen is martyred by the Sanhedrin. After Stephen is martyred, a large group of Christians flee Jerusalem and go back to their hometowns to plant churches and evangelize the areas that they know. This leaves James' church in Jerusalem eviscerated, and many of the high-leading officials, the elders, the wise council that James had flee along with them. But when they go back home, the persecution didn't stop for them. It only mounted as tensions between Rome and Israel increased. By the point that James writes his letter in 48 AD, we can assume that his recipients are on the brink of apostasy. They are able and willing to abandon the faith that they have held fast to for quite a while now because of the persecution that's come up against them. But very much in line with the character of the Lord, James sends this letter as a message of encouragement, holding fast to them and their faith in God. The context of the letter of James is, is steeped in mystery, however. You know, we know the information that we just disclosed, but after that, I mean, we're basically lost. So when James starts off his letter by addressing it to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, what does that mean? Who are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Well, there are basically three ideas as to what this, this line could be in reference to. Either one, the 12 tribes could be referring to all Christians everywhere. You know, since James would have seen parallels between the estranged Christians who have fled Jerusalem and his own nation after they were exiled to to Babylon. Perhaps James is using this as kind of a colloquial term to describe Gentile and Jewish Christians all over the known world. The second idea is that since this line is so culturally relevant, you know, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, that it refers exclusively to the Messianic Jewish population of Christians and it rejects a Gentile reading altogether. But the third, and to me the most likely and most convincing option, is that this letter is written to a set of 12 or so high-ranking Christians that fled Jerusalem after Stephen was martyred and have planted churches in all these different provinces around Asia Minor and the known world at the time. Yeah, I like this interpretation because, you know, it, it anchors us to a historical event, Stephen's martyrdom. It puts borders around our interpretation so that, you know, we don't think this letter is speaking directly to us for all circumstances since none of the other letters do that. And it allows us to see the purpose behind James's letter more more clearly. And so, well, I'm sure there are a lot of really strong arguments for one of the first two options, and I'm sure people way smarter than myself will disagree with me here, let's just say for the sake of ease and for the sake of consistency that we are going to take the third interpretation, and we're going to use it as our jumping off point so that, so that we can move forward. So, So we're going to say that James is writing to a group of 12 or so estranged pastors who are ready to abandon the faith. Pastors, you know, that, that really important role we talked about a few episodes back, the leaders of the church that have an incredibly hard job. Yeah, those guys are ready to bail. So James is writing an exhortation to them. He says, do not lose hope in the God who brought you salvation when you experience hardships and trials. Don't lose hope when you experience hardships. That's how his letter starts off. There are two ways, James begins to paint, two ways that we can deal with the affliction that comes up against us. The first way, the desirable way, James would say, is that our affliction would lead to insights into the nature and character of God. And then those insights would then lead to a greater degree of of wisdom. And that wisdom would then generate within us this profound and deepening faith. But the second way, James warns, is is a more sinister, a more corrupt way that when hardships come over us, they overcome us. And the way hardships overcome the individual or the church is when their affliction leads to this lustful desire for a better life, for, for a different life. that lustful desire of betterment then gives birth to to sin it forces us to lie to steal to cheat and to murder our way to the top of of whatever social ladder we need to scramble up to to get that that better life in sin james says when it is fully grown brings forth death in that death that death that james is talking about is a spiritual one now okay this is only an interpretation I'm going to use the context to make an educated guess and say that it is likely that James is referring to an idea that he has created throughout his letter, that people can easily get caught in this web of sinful desires. The reason why it's so easy for people to become entangled in this web of sin is because at some point in their life, they see that they never were really alive to God at all. In the Greek, we can see this theme clearly. When lust overtakes us and sin is created time and time and time again, to the point where we don't even care that sin is the way of our being. And then it just shows us that we've been dead all along. We were never really alive. And so that may sound really strong. That may sound like really strong language that James is saying, You guys who are the pastors of these churches may not actually be Christians because you don't care about anything that's happening in your life anymore. James is making a very strong claim, but it forms the impetus, the purpose, the reason of writing the letter. He is imploring his audience. He's begging his audience to examine their true spiritual state of being. He's claiming that his audience, these 12 tribe members, the, the, past, the people who we're assuming are pastors, may not actually be Christians after all. And as he goes on, he will show us how the most precise way that we can tell that they're not Christians is because they don't even care that they're not followers of Christ anymore. If someone walked up to them and said, hey, you're not a Christian, James says their heart is so hard, they wouldn't even care sin has revealed to them that they are dead. They've been dead all along. They are stuck in this cycle of sinful desires. And to James, that's the worst possible reality. I hope this is beginning to make sense because we haven't even gotten to chapter two yet. <laughs> but but if his reason for writing the letter is to make sure that the people receiving it examine their spiritual lives closely under a microscope, then he rounds out his first chapter by giving us his theme on, on a silver platter. I, I, I mean, the last line in the first chapter is, be doers of the gospel, not hearers only. Now, many of you following along in your Bibles may be wondering how I got that wording. So let me just say the quote. It's be doers of the word and not hearers only, but throughout the New Testament, the biblical authors use that that Greek word for word, logos. It it really means reasoning or reason. The biblical authors use that word logos to refer to the gospel time and time again. Jesus does this all the time in his parables. And so it means that James's theme here is going to be that the gospel the message that Jesus Christ reconciles sinful humanity to the Godhead ought to inspire his audience to live their lives worthy of that calling. That they were freely reconciled to God and given the inheritance of Christ for nothing, that should inspire even the weakest of faiths to be invigorated once again, at least to James anyway. And so then James goes on to paint seven vignettes of, of how the church often fails to live out the calling that they've been called to. He says, we show favor to people based on external factors. We are unwilling to help people in need. We speak irrationally. We boast in our strengths. We, we create needless divisiveness and quarrels. We, we don't trust God's sovereignty. We lust after wealth. And all seven of these vignettes focus around one central idea that's found in James chapter 2. In this, this chapter is an infamous chapter where James, James says outright that faith, if it does not have works, is dead. And it sounds like a direct contradiction to the rest of the biblical epic that we've explored this far. <laughs> but take into consideration the context that we've already set up. and. Let's really dig into this line here. Let's explore it. We see that what James is getting at is what he's been saying all along. A faith that does not believe in God is no faith at all. A faith that believes in anything other than Jesus as the Christ is not a true faith. And he implores his readers here. He implores them to ask themselves, would they be affected if Christ was not their king? Because if Christ is not their king, then they are not his subjects. At the end of the letter, James gives one final encouragement to be patient in suffering, to rely on prayer. He exhorts them to bring anyone that has wandered from the faith back to the faith by reminding them of the glory of the gospel and the kingship of Christ. You see, I I think we approach the letter of James thinking that all he does is contradict Paul. But when we do that, I mean, I think we've decontextualized both James and Paul. (laughs) Because they're, they're two different authors with two different ways of argumentation saying the same thing, and we all go crazy. But when you strip them both down, you know, you have to ask what is being said when everything's stripped away. I mean, Paul says, as we've discussed in every one of our episodes up until now, that obedience comes from the thankful realization of what Christ has done. Obedience comes because God is is worthy of it, not because we have to, not because we're working our way to salvation, but because we have already been saved, can we thankfully work out our obedience? James says that obedience comes from the thankful realization of what Christ has done. Obedience comes because God is worthy of it. You see, the key to all of this, I think, lies in how James sees God and sees himself, which is exactly how he opens his letter, which, because it's such a short letter, I think every word is, is imperative here. He opens his letter by saying, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he introduces himself. He orients himself to God and God to himself. James, a servant of God God. And the Lord, the King, Jesus Christ. James sees himself properly oriented toward who God is. God is the King. And even though James is the, you know, quote unquote, ruler of the church in Jerusalem, you know, James has sovereign authority over that church as the pastor. He sees himself not as this boastful monarch, but as a servant to the true King. And as a servant, James sees that he has been put on this earth to do the will of the king. James sees himself as an ambassador to the king, to radiate the magnanimous dominion of God out beyond Jerusalem and into the world. James sees himself as entered into the grand biblical epic that started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And so he does. And so he exhorts his listeners to do the same thing. If anything, James's letter shows us that the snake crusher, you know, the Messiah, God incarnate, is, is this great, great king, greater than any we have imagined, like the kings of old, like Moses, like David, but, but far more superior than any king we could even think of here on earth. And if far superior, and yet condescends to humanity and dies on a cross, then we need to have a properly oriented view of who that makes us. If we are truly thankful for the grace that we have been given, if we truly see the goodness that God is king and we are free from sin and death, and we do not offer our obedience because we have to, we offer our obedience because we see clearly that he is worthy of it. You see, to James, all the wisdom of life that he lists out in his whole sermon, they are but the outflow of a faith in a mighty king. A king who knows him. A king who protects him. A king who wants to see him flourish in a world that wants to see him dead. A king who who will forgive him without restraint when he fails. King who had the humility and the strength and the love and the kindness to choose to sacrifice his own body for the sake of him. And in so doing, bring him into the communion of the Godhead. To James, all the obedience he can muster up comes from a deeper and deeper revelation of that reality. And to have a heart so hardened as to disdain a God who would ask so little of you after giving his life for you is at least a point in your life, James would say, where you need to begin to reflect on who is actually the king of your life. You or God. Thank you so much. This was Bible Unbound. We'll see you next time.